It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Today, I am going to speak to human rights lawyer Keelan Gallagher. Earlier this year, Keelan was appointed the Irish government's special rapporteur on child protection. We'll be talking about that, of course, but that's not the only impressive job she holds. Keelan is a prominent human rights lawyer working with the famous Doughty Street Chambers in London. She acts in cases before many tribunals, such as the European Court of Human Rights, UN Special Procedures and many international courts. She also sits as a part-time coroner in England and Wales. She represented Dubliner Ibrahim Halawa, who was held for four years in pre-trial detention in Cairo and worked tirelessly on securing his release, not to mention her work for the bereaved families and survivors of the July 7th London bombings and on the Hillsborough inquest into the death of 96 Liverpool football club fans in 1989. She's from Portmarnock in Dublin and studied at UCD, graduated in 1999 with a degree in law. And I think you'll agree she's a force of nature with an incredible story to tell and sleeps about five minutes a night, as far as I can gather. Here she is, Keelan Gallagher. Keelan, you grew up in Portmarnock by the sea and you've come a long way since then. But tell us a bit about your, your background. Thanks very much uh, for having me on. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in Portmarnock in late 1970s and through the 1980s, went to Portmarnock Community School, so to a state school and proud. Um, and I really had a childhood with uh, two parents who taught me that you could do anything and you could be anything in a house overflowing with books and crammed with ideas. And um, yeah, I always, from a very early age, had a kind of desire to do something that made a difference, I suppose. Um, and it wasn't until much later I knew quite what that was. You know, I went through phases thinking I was going to be a writer, I kind of stalked Roald Dahl, sending him multiple letters <laughs> when I was very young. And um, yeah, spent a long time thinking I might want to be an actor, uh, going to Betty Ann Norton, finding that very inspiring. Um, but yeah, I, I, over the years, it really decided I wanted to do something that made a difference to other people's lives. That was, was really it, what the focus was. Was it a tipping point? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because sometimes when you look back, you think there's a road to Damascus moment, like a particular thing. And I can think of particular times when I really felt driven to do something that was social justice or human rights focused. Like I really, um, when I was about eight or nine, I read When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit, Judith Kerr's brilliant book. And I remember feeling so enraged and thinking how the world needed to change. You know, so there's moments like that. But actually, I suppose the the real turning point for me uh, came when I read a book by uh, someone who is a heroine of mine and has become a very good friend in more recent years, uh, Baroness Helena Kennedy. Mm. She wrote a book uh, called Eve Was Framed, uh, which I read when I was an undergraduate law student. And I read that, it just made me think differently about the world, how women are treated by the law, and how actually ultimately the law is a tool for social good. And that's probably key moment. I, I do tell her now and again <laughs> um, that she's had a real influence. It's kind of pinched myself every now and again that she's now a very good friend and we work together. Well, that is quite an outcome. You went to UCD, you did a law degree in UCD. Did anything about that inspire you? Yeah, very much so. So, uh, well, I was a Northsider trekking across on, uh, on the 46A um, every day for a long time. But actually, um, I had a uh, pretty catastrophic road traffic accident uh, when I was 20 and I spent almost a year in a wheelchair um, and then moved over to live in UCD Res and the residences over there. And um, it, that's another one of those experiences, you know, that you put together with everything else. Uh, so an experience of being temporarily disabled and seeing all the barriers that people were facing was also something which really motivated me. And also UCD was a very inspiring place to be. You know, I spent a lot of my time um 
uh, outside the lecture theatre, it's got to be said, at the student bar and um, at the Literary and Historical Society and um, you know at Dramsock. Uh, so actually much of what I found inspiring wasn't just in lectures, but it was with the people that I met and the people I was surrounded by. But that was a really inspiring time to be mm. in UCD in the mid-1990s. And definitely that's coloured what I now do. And you went on to the King's Inns where you yeah. did the bar, I presume. And uh, and you went to Cambridge. Yeah, so I initially was going to do, um, I mean, it won't surprise anyone who knew me in the 1980s to know that I planned to argue for a living. So I decided to become a barrister. I was initially going to be working as a barrister um, in Dublin. And while I was training at King's Inns for a couple of years part-time, I was also uh, lecturing and teaching at UCD and at Trinity. I was a little bit torn about, did I want to be an academic? Did I want to be um, a barrister? Did I want to do both? Uh, did I want to do campaigning work? So it took a year to go to Cambridge um, in 2001, thinking it was 12 months to kind of get my head straight, decide exactly what I wanted to do, and also just hone my skills a bit on human rights and civil liberties issues. And then, of course, life happens. You know, you go over for a year, and here I am two decades later, and now based primarily in the UK, spending a lot of my time back in Ireland, but my main base is in the UK. And that's since a decision to go for a year, which has turned into 20. Which is extraordinary. Yeah. Well, um, I think there's a lot of people like that. There's a lot of Irish people in London who went for a year or two years and who've ended up staying for longer. And I think that's one of the things, you know, you just make these decisions along the way, which sometimes are short-term decisions that turn into longer-term ones. But it was while I was in uh, Cambridge that... Um, spent a lot of my time doing more work specifically on a range of human rights issues that really interested and enraged me. And then I was lucky enough to get offered a job at uh, Liberty, the National Council for Civil Liberties, doing work in European Court of Human Rights and on policy issues. And it was a very interesting and exciting time to be working um, in the UK with the Human Rights Act just having come in. And I found that a very inspiring few years. And uh, it was then 2005 um, when we, of course, had the London bombings and the 7-7 London bombings. And I remember that time so acutely because until then, I, I was I really felt like I was a, an Irish person who was temporarily based in London. And uh, that is the first time that whole week when London succeeded in getting the um, Olympic, the Olympics it succeeded in the Olympic bid. And then a couple of days later, there was this uh, terrible bomb which took so many lives and impacted on so many people who I knew in a very profound way. Uh, I started to really feel like a Londoner. So an Irish person who was always a, also a Londoner. And that was a really um, important time for me. And then a few years later, I ended up acting for a lot of the bereaved families and the survivors in the inquest and the associated work by trying to seek justice for the people who'd lost their lives uh, and uh, the preventable lives that were lost. Yeah, one of the things that interests me about you, Keelan, is that that you have, you, you made it your home, so therefore there's something you do love about it and you certainly, something you loved about it then. It was still under a Labour government, I think. Yeah, at um, the time. At yes. the time. Yeah, it's very, um, rather different now. Rather different now. But you've never been, you've never been afraid to take on that system and, you know, from about the Northern Ireland abortion rights, the UK's uh, illegal immigration bill. Tell us a bit about that. I mean, you really have been a thorn in the side of the establishment. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose the first thing to say is it's been an interesting 20 years to be in the UK because I, I left in September 2001 at a time when the euro hadn't yet come in. The euro was a few months later. Um, and when many of the people who I knew were, were struggling financially um, here and London seemed to offer many more opportunities at, at that time. And... Uh, you know, there we had we had um, the Eighth Amendment. We had a whole series of things which were far more restrictive um, in Ireland. You know, divorce had only come in while I was in university. I discharged myself from hospital actually to go and vote in, in that particular referendum. I felt so strongly about it. Um, and over the twenty years, it, it's been very interesting to see Ireland become so much more liberal and open. And at the same time, to see the UK, I'm afraid, going quite the other way, yeah. um, you know, particularly with Brexit and with some of the very reactionary policies that we're now seeing uh, coming in uh, in relation to immigration, asylum and a whole range of other topics. And I suppose um, I've definitely got uh, a dose of the uh, it's not fair gene. Uh, you know, so I've, I've always kind of had that. Well, hang on, that that's not right. That's not fair uh, kind of mindset. And uh 
one of the advantages of being a human rights lawyer is, you know, you've honed these skills where actually you've got a way of holding the state to account. And a lot of the time that is the UK state uh, when I'm based in London. It's also other states around the world. But that's it's a real privilege of the job that we do, that actually we are able to take on systemic unfairness and systemic breach of human rights and achieve real change mm. for individual clients and no, also we'll, for wider groups. We'll move on to the other states, but let's just stay stay in the UK first of all, um, because there has been rather dangerous anti-lawyer rhetoric going on over there yeah. that has been, uh, even at a distance, it's it's almost unbelievable what's been happening. You have people at a high level, the Home Secretary, the Prime Minister, using language like lefty lawyers. Yeah. I think you definitely qualify in that yeah. category. <laughs> um, and talking about irresponsible human rights lawyers. It's almost yeah. like they're talking about you, Keelan. Yeah, so, What's it um, like to live there now? Yeah, it, it, it's very shocking, actually, that kind of language being used. You know, so, and in fact, when I took Silk in 2017, um, I, I took a line from Gay Byrne. Uh, I'd always wanted to say there's one for everyone in the audience. <laughs> and uh, I made up these bags which said um, left-wing activist human rights lawyer because I'm proud of it. You know, it's a term that's been used as a slur, but actually mm. it's something we should be proud of. Um, and that language that's been used, so it's been used really since about 2016 in a very systematic way. And it's very dangerous. You know, we've seen over that period of time, you know, a lawyer, um, lawyers at Duncan Lewis at an immigration firm um, being attacked uh, by an enraged gentleman with a knife. Um, uh, I personally have been attacked at work. Yes. Um, you know, uh, many of us have seen this real hateful kind of language being used. So people being referred to as enemies of the state, essentially, just for doing their jobs. And that language is uh, very, very dangerous. And also it sends a terrible message to other states abroad who uh, then use um, their powers against lawyers elsewhere. And actually, often they can point to a state like the UK and say, well, the UK is critical of lawyers to what's wrong with us doing it as well. So that kind of language is very dangerous and reactionary. And at the moment, we're seeing a lot of it at the moment with the illegal immigration bill, you know, which has really profoundly concerning changes that it's proposing just by way of example. Um, in the last number of days, uh, there's been proposals by the Home Secretary in the UK to allow forcible restraint of children if they resist deportation to Rwanda and other countries. And some of my colleagues acted for Jimmy Mubenga's family, uh, the man from Angola, perfectly healthy man, who lost his life after he was forcibly restrained on a British Airways flight to be removed to Angola. Uh, I've acted for um, many families and child survivors and victims of forcible restraint in other settings, in special schools in the UK. And we know uh, that these are tactics which can cause profound mental and physical damage and even can risk loss of life. And to see the kind of rhetoric we've seen in the last few days being directed at some of the most vulnerable children in society uh, is deeply concerning. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm proud to be doing a job where we can hold the state to account mm. when they adopt policies like that and use rhetoric like that. Can we just reel back a bit the, to threats against yourself, Caelan? You were, yeah. it was, uh, I think you, you were threatened with, with um, ending up like Pat Finucane, who was shot in front of his family. Yeah. And you were attacked at work. Was that, one, was that roughly around the same time or what, what happened? Well, there's three separate things, actually. Mm. Uh, the first thing is there's uh, one individual, probably a b bad piece of luck, where uh, an individual came to uh, my work who I think was very unwell, and um, assaulted me at work. And that's being looked into by the authorities. And I, I won't when say anything this? further about that. It's about a year ago. Um, but I have good reason to believe that the gentleman in question was quite unwell. Um, and that's being looked into now. Uh, the second thing is um, a series of uh, threats that I received from um, one individual uh, who's very anti-Irish, anti-Hillsborough, and anti-human rights lawyer. And unfortunately, I'm at the little crossover of that particular Venn diagram. So it, he just got very obsessed and sent uh, a lot of very threatening material, including material saying you should end up like Pat Finucane. But that's again being handled by the authorities. I mean, you shouldn't have to deal with these kind of threats just for doing your job. But, but um, these things happen. But the third piece is much more worrying, really. And that's quite different. That is uh, because of work that I and some colleagues are doing for a journalist who's imprisoned in Hong Kong, Jimmy Lai, mm. uh, we've had very serious threats uh, from the Chinese and Hong Kong authorities. Um, and that is the weight of a whole state 
being targeted against us simply for doing our jobs. So the other instances are very frightening, uh, but they're they're not one-offs because they're within that broader pattern that you've described, Cathy, where there's rhetoric that's anti-lawyer rhetoric in the UK and so on. But they're individuals who are behaving in a way which can then be managed by the authorities. But the other kind of threats that we're facing are are much more worrying, to be mm. honest. Just a last question about the UK, because we have lots more to talk about. But you mentioned this is a lot of this has obviously um, escalated since 2016, which is, guess what, the year that Brexit yeah. arrived. Um, how much of this do you put down to Brexit? It's a little hard to say, isn't it? I mean, it's mm. been a it's been a, a tricky time to be um, Irish or European uh, in the UK. And, you know, with my kids, many um, of the people in their school classes over the last number of years whose parents were European have chosen to leave. They voted with their feet. You know, they've said, Mm. I don't feel welcome here anymore. I'm going to leave. You know, we've seen a real brain drain, very talented people who've left the UK uh, as a result. I've definitely seen a kind of rise in Mm. some anti-Irish rhetoric during that time, um, which is worrying. And also I felt some of the language that was being used about Irish politicians during that time um, Mm. in the UK press uh, was very concerning. So that's a that's something that I've seen since 2016 and that worries me. You've worked, as we've said, for the uh, relatives, bereaved families of the London bombings, of the Hillsborough inquests. Um, so many things, Keelan, you've done. Uh, but let's just set you in context. At some point, you arrived at Doughty Street Chambers, yeah. which is actually very famous uh, for its human rights work. Um, and there's a law apparently that says uh, we have to say that Amal Clooney also works there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but how did you end up there? What 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 yeah. was the trajectory that got you there? Yeah, so uh, I I transferred to the bar in England and Wales in 2005. So I started at Doughty Street in 2005. And uh, Amal, who's a colleague of mine now and a, and a friend, and we work on some cases together, uh, joined a few years later. So at the time when I joined was 2005. I'd been working at Liberty for about three years. Um, So as a European qualified lawyer at Liberty, working on both policy parliamentary issues, whole range of human rights issues, and then on European Court of Human Rights cases. And during that time, I just went back to the feeling that actually I really wanted to be in practice. I wanted to be running the cases myself. And uh, I thought um, I'd already intended to go to the bar when I'd done King's Inns. And I thought I'm going to give it a go doing the bar in England and Wales uh, so that I can do more of the international work because, look, it's a product of a very unpleasant history, but the reality is that um, the UK is a centre for a lot of international human rights work. So I thought, well, should I go to the US or should I go to Strasbourg or should I go to London? And decided that I'd give it a go in London and uh, applied to a number of chambers, never really dreaming that I'd get in to my dream set, uh, which is Doughty Street. Um, you know, having admired Helena Kennedy Edward Fitzgerald, Geoffrey Robertson from afar for so long, having poured over their books and followed their cases so closely. And uh, yeah, I used that phrase earlier about pinching myself. I do still pinch myself, you know, that here I am um, now in the set that I'd watch from afar. And I'm now one of those people who gets to do this job for a living. It's a real privilege. What did that take, Keelan, to get into those chambers? Yeah, so the, the I feel very sorry for anyone going through the process of trying to get, it's called pupillage in England and Wales, and it's pretty cutthroat. And I see such incredibly talented lawyers all the time applying um, and struggling to get places. Um, but one of the advantages of the chamber system in England and Wales is when you get in, you then have the kind of branding. You've got the, there's an external mark of approval that actually this chambers, which is very well regarded for human rights law, has taken you in. Um, so there's a there's a benefit to that. It means you immediately go in, you're in a network with a range of other people who've got expertise. You're surrounded by the people who are top of their game. You know, so there I was in 2005, suddenly surrounded by the people who were fighting the death penalty, um, the mandatory death penalty in a range of countries around the world. You know, people like Edward Fitzgerald and Keir Starmer. Um, You know, people who were taking really cutting edge cases, uh, holding the state to account um, in a range of contexts. And it's a very inspiring environment to be in. And uh, it's a privilege to be there. So what did that lead to? 
So what, what, was, what was your immediate work then? Yeah. How did, as a matter of interest, I, I know we know how the system works here. A, yeah. a, a barrister is a sole operator, self-employed. Yeah. They have to employ their own staff. They, they provide for their own pension, all that sort of thing. I'm not going to cry tears for them. Uh, but some of them <laughs> World's actually... World's smallest violin. Yeah, I could, <laughs> absolutely. But yeah. still, it's a, it's a tough old, old business to be starting yeah. out in unless you have massive connections. And even then, you still have to prove yourself once yeah. you stand up in court. How does it work in... in in the UK? Well, there's a lot of similarities. And look, a, a lot of my uh, friends and colleagues who are at the bar in Ireland, you know, there's huge similarities between what happens with them at the bar in Ireland, uh, what happens with the bar in England and Wales, and indeed with my colleagues at the bar in Northern Ireland too. There's many overlaps. Uh, so we often focus on the differences, but, you know, we're still, we're self-employed, for example. That's particularly difficult for women. Um, you know, and I see that with women at the bar in Dublin uh, and also with women at the bar in Belfast. Why is, and in why is that, Keila? Well, you know, you get no maternity pay. Mm. Uh, so the bar in England and Wales has very gradually over the years shifted so that there now is a, a form of system. And I'm lucky enough to be in a chambers that actually has a very enlightened paternal leave policy. So, you know, there is some support given to you, including financial support. It's nothing like you would get from an employer. And that's why the statistics in England and Wales, which really worry me, are that um, you get a drop-off of women from the bar, um, an exodus of women from the bar after they have children, and very particularly after they have a second child. So I'm at the bar, I've got three children, uh, and that's quite unusual. And I find that very sad that you've got these very talented uh, women, very talented advocates um, who leave in droves because of a lack of support. And that a lot of that is inherent in being in a self-employed profession. Um, and I do understand that, but it's why if we want to have a, a diverse uh, bar and we have a want to have a bar that reflects a whole range of talents, we must have ways in which we retain talented women. And I've got to say, one of the reasons I'm so concerned about this issue is we've had essentially equal entry into the profession for women and men for decades now. So there's no excuse to have, we don't have a pipeline problem. There's no excuse to still have the very distorted figures that you see at the top of the profession. And we see that in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, in England and Wales, and indeed elsewhere, those kind of stubborn statistics which show that actually there's a pyramid with a lot of women at the bottom. But as it goes further up, um, there are far fewer and fewer women but if it's taken us this long uh, to even get to grips with issues about uh, rights of women at the bar, it's much, much more worrying when you then think about things like race or socioeconomic status, for example, where we really have a pipeline problem too. I've got to say, on this issue, Ireland fares much better than England and Wales in many ways. I mean, you look at the numbers of uh, women in the judiciary in Ireland mm. or you look at senior women in senior law officer roles uh, Ireland has a much better record than England and Wales, actually. So despite the chamber system, um, which has many advantages, what England and Wales has, a real, has many problems. What is the advantage of the chamber system? Yeah, so I suppose um, there's a few different things. Uh, first of all, it's just partly a function of population and just the size that many people in um, England and Wales are specialists in doing a particular type of law, you know, intellectual property law or a particular type of commercial litigation or a particular type of human rights law. So a chambers allows you to come together as a group and to hone your expertise in that particular area. But one of the real advantages of it for me is the camaraderie, you know, so being able yes. to be around colleagues who do this kind of work. And it does also mean um, that you quite often you can get ideas, you can spark ideas off your colleagues, you can hear about what they're doing and so on. There's real advantages to that. But the biggest advantage is uh, just at entry level, that actually, if you are someone who's come from a non-traditional background, you don't have a lot of money behind you, um, and you get in to uh, a chambers, you then have, you don't need to print your own notepaper, you know, you have a support system in place already, you've got clerks, you pay rent essentially, so you pay an amount back every month that covers the cost of staff, but you don't have all the startup costs that you would have otherwise. So there's advantages to that. Look, there's still huge privilege and huge bias uh, mm. in the system in England and Wales, but there there are startup advantages that you don't necessarily have outside that system. Mm. Just one last question about that. Um, it's kind of a niche issue, but nonetheless, I think any any lawyers listening to this might be interested. What, why is there a resistance to the chamber system here? Because what you're saying makes perfect sense. Yeah, um, well, I, I think um, I think there's a range of reasons. I, I think there's um, 
there's been a concern for a long time that there there might be might undermine the independence of the bar and the independence of the bar is hugely important and you know as soon as you start to have structures and systems you might get entrenched interests and people being concerned about entrenched interests and that's a very important point and it is worth saying we are kind of comparing apples and oranges you know the bar in dublin is very different to the bar in um to the bar in england and wales for many reasons including uh just the spread of expertise and what people tend to do. I should say uh, there is one thing which uh, I think is a real advantage in the Irish system that does get lost in the English system. And that is um, one of the things I've been most concerned about since starting at the bar in England and Wales in 2005 is that a lot of people have the advantage of honing expertise in a particular area, but then they also have a bit of a silo mentality. You know, so they just focus on their own little patch of law and they don't think outside that particular patch. They don't think outside the box in any way. And one of the advantages uh, in the Irish system is that, of course, you've got people who are very specialist in, say, family law or criminal law and do that and only that. But apart from that, people tend to do a wider range Mm. of things. Mm. And there are some disadvantages to that, but there's also a real advantage that you kind of survey the whole field rather than looking only at one particular topic. And I'll give you one example Uh, Very early on, um, when I was at the bar in England and Wales, this was not someone from my chambers, I rushed to say, um, I I saw someone who had just got convicted, a defendant who just got convicted, and he then turned to their barrister to ask for advice on what the sentence actually meant, you know, Mm -hmm. when they were going to get out of prison. And the answer was, well, I'm the criminal defence barrister. You'd need to speak to a prison lawyer about that. And you think, but this is hopeless. You know, this is a person... Who's a, this is a person who's just had this devastating thing happen and they just want to know what the practical impact of it is. And then saying, well, that's not my area, you'll need to speak to someone else, is a real sign. I mean, that's a very extreme example of a silo mentality. But I do see that, you know, and you do see people not thinking outside the box. Look, bottom line is, as a lawyer, what we're supposed to be doing is a client comes to you with a problem and you're supposed to be working out how you can deal with their problem and how you can make things better for them. Now, in some very specialist areas of law, you only need to know the little area uh, that you're working on. And the problem is going to be within those four corners. But much of the work I do isn't like that. Much of the work I do, you know, involves someone coming to you and you do need to think in a creative way about how you can lose, use the law to help them. And it helps to have a broader perspective when you're doing that. Before we move on to really important topics, and this is an important one, but nonetheless, it shows the breadth of your of your, of your reach. You acted for the family of Margaret Keane in the ecclesiastical court in yeah. England. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so Margaret Keane's family are really inspiring, actually. Uh, wonderful family. So this is an Irish family in Coventry. Uh, so Margaret Keane and uh, her husband, Bernie Keane, moved over in the 1950s. And Margaret Keane was a real pillar of her community. So was a dinner lady, very popular in the area. Bernie Keane, hugely impressive in the GAA in Great Britain. And they were very proud of their Irish heritage. And um, since the case, actually, Bernie has also died very sadly. Um, And I'm in touch with uh, the family and continue to be in touch with the family about the loss of both of their parents. When Margaret died a number of years ago, it was very important to Bernie, to her husband and to her children uh, that her gravestone reflect her Irish heritage. And they wanted to have on her gravestone uh, the words, in our grihigajo, so in our hearts forever. And an outrageous decision of the ecclesiastical court in Coventry ruled that using the Irish language on the gravestone uh, would send a message to people walking in Coventry graveyard who don't speak Irish. And it would be perceived as a political statement. And really, that judgment was so concerning. And I'm very pleased to say that we overturned it and we got a decision that it was discriminatory and anti-Irish because it was anti-Irish. And the suggestion was that people who saw the Irish language would immediately think this is a language of terrorism, a language which is linked to political slogans. You know, they would see it and they would immediately think it was the equivalent of a kind of terrorist slogan. And that was deeply concerning to the family, but also a very important case for the Irish community in Britain, because actually really speaks to the importance of so many people, you know, who in the bad old days may well have been referred to as plastic paddies, you know, who are second generation, um, protecting their Irish heritage and being proud of their Irish heritage. And look, I'm now the proud mother of three children who are Irish and English. Uh, identify very much more as Irish than English, I've got to say, Um, you know, but who have English accents, but really have Irish souls and very much consider themselves Irish. And that's exactly the same with Margaret Keane's family. So it was a very important case 
uh, to me uh, and to Margaret Keane's family and also to the Irish community in Britain. And I'm delighted to say that we, we won. And the gravestone now carries the words that the family wanted um, in our Grihika Joe. And it's uh, a fitting tribute to Margaret Keane, an amazing woman. And Bernie has since been buried with Margaret. Um, and that's very important to the family. And it's great that we were able to get that disgraceful judgment overturned. Does it have implications for other ethnic groups? Yeah, so um, one of the things that was very interesting here is that the ruling was in fact specifically anti-Irish. So in the graveyard itself, uh, one of Margaret's daughters went and did her own detective work and found that actually many of the gravestones already had um, language in Welsh, for example. So in fact, there was a Welsh gravestone which said almost exactly the same thing. I won't try, you, I won't try my Welsh out <laughs> on you, but it essentially said in our hearts forever in Welsh. So this particular judge had singled out Irish for special treatment. Now, of course, you could see that that kind of um, biased rationale could potentially also apply to some other languages in other contexts, like Arabic, for example. Um, but actually, he'd singled out Irish for special treatment. And that was one of the reasons why the uh, decision he made was overturned and was found to be discriminatory. Right. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, what we said, you also acted for bereaved families of the London bombings and the Hillsborough inquest. The Hillsborough inquest in particular was was a test of endurance for everybody yeah. involved, never mind the law. Gillian, what, what did you come away with from, from yeah. the, all that? Well, I should start by saying that some of that work is still continuing, so I'll, I'll tell you about that in a moment. But um, what happened at Hillsborough, so 96 people went to a football match and never came home. And in fact, it, now that number has gone up to 97. So 97 people went to a football match and never came home. And... Uh, it is astonishing what the families have been through. That happened in 1989. You know, I remember it well um, at the time. Um, I mean, I actually grew up in a house with no TV, so I, I didn't have a TV image of it, but I remember seeing it all over the newspapers and hearing it on the radio at the time. And it really seared in your memory. Uh, I think anyone our age will, will remember that so clearly. And when I was then in UCD in law school, you know, I was studying the cases about what happened in the early 1990s um, you know, what the families tried to do to secure justice and their failures. So to then be in a position working for those families, you know, decades later is a privilege, but also deeply shocking that they had to fight for so long. So what I've done with them is, first of all, working in the inquests. Um, they were the longest running jury inquests that have ever been held uh, in Great Britain. And uh, the day when we got the right result from the jury was um, profoundly moving. And, you know, these are all people um, who had... Their loved ones died in 1989. They had the horror of that. But they also then endured years of slurs. So South Yorkshire police uh, essentially saying that the fans themselves had contributed to the deaths. Completely, completely untrue. Uh, and they had to go through years and years of trying to seek justice and accountability. So getting the right outcome from the jury was so important. A finding actually that these people had been unlawfully killed, uh, that they'd been unlawfully killed as a result of systemic and outrageous failures. Uh, by the police in particular, and by a number of other services. So that was very important. Uh, since then, um, I'm pleased to say that with a number of the bereaved families and the survivors, um, we have secured uh, an apology, a historic apology from South Yorkshire Police and also West Midlands Police, who are involved in the cover-up. And they've also brought successful civil proceedings 
about the lie, the perpetuation of the false narrative that the fans were somehow to blame and the families were somehow to blame for what happened to their loved ones. But there's one outstanding bit of that story that remains unsolved in 2013, and that is um, the Hicks family. So you might remember the two girls, the two teenage girls who died during Hillsborough, Sarah and Victoria Hicks, and their family brought a case at the time about what had happened to the girls themselves. So it's what's called pre-death pain and suffering. So they brought a claim on behalf of the estate to say that their girls had suffered. And at the time, the case went all the way up to the House of Lords and they lost their case because it was said in the House of Lords uh, that everyone who died, all of those 96, uh, would have been uh, unconscious within seconds and dead within minutes. And we now know that's completely untrue. And for that family and a number of other families, it's very important that that historic record get corrected. So that's an ongoing fight. It seems ridiculous we're having an ongoing fight in 2013 about something that happened in 1989. But the fight is not yet over and it does continue. And this is a very extreme example of bereaved families being left in a position where getting the most basic answers to what happened to their loved ones and getting some form of accountability for what went wrong has taken decades. And that shouldn't happen. It's also an extraordinary example of persistence on the part of the lawyers. I mean, I think this is where you deserve all kudos for... Well, I should say the heroes here are the families, you know, and I I feel that about so many of our cases. You know, I mean, I think the um, superheroes in so many of these cases are uh, the individuals, the bereaved families, the victims, the survivors who take the state on. And we as lawyers are doing a job for them and we can help them. But they're the heroes of this story. Although, to be fair, Keelan, you're, you're, you're required to say yes first. I will take this on, even though it's been going on for how many years? 40? Yeah. Which brings us on, actually, to, to grappling with other states. Um, and you have been hugely involved in protecting, in the protection of journalists in, in other territories, murders, kidnappings, rapes. There are a few names in particular that come to the fore. Tell us about some of the the, the figures, some of the journalists involved, some of whom are dead, some of whom are still living, hopefully. So let's talk about that. Okay, so um, this is a very important area of my work. I think the work that journalists do is so hugely important. I'm saying this sitting in the Irish Times, so I hope I'm preaching to the converted on that. You know, freedom of expression is um, at the centre of so many other rights because unless... Journalists tell stories from conflict zones and tell stories about corruption and tell stories holding the state to account and holding power to account. Uh, no other human rights can really be achieved. You know, so I, I think um, this is so important for journalists themselves and also for wider human rights. So for a number of years, I've worked for uh, bereaved families of journalists who've been killed for their work. Now, that includes the family of Daphne Caruana Galizia, for example, who was killed in a shocking way in 2017 in Malta, in a European Union country, in a Council of Europe country, in circumstances which many people presented wrongly as being a bolt from the blue. And this was not a bolt from the blue. So when Daphne was killed in 2017, I'm afraid it was an aberration um, and an atrocity which was waiting to happen. And 10 days before her death, she gave an interview uh, to the Council of Europe where she described in her own words precisely the danger that she was in because she had for decades been a thorn in the side of the Maltese state. Um, She had been, since the late 1980s, had been running most of the major stories holding the Maltese state to account. And for that, she had faced multiple lawsuits trying to strangle her financially Mm. She had 47 lawsuits in place at the time of her death, um, criminal and civil proceedings against 47. her. 47? Yeah, some of which uh, her family had to continue because in Malta, defamation suits, criminal and civil can continue posthumously. So her family have also had to be fighting those whilst also seeking accountability for her death. But also, you know, her home had been um, firebombed. Uh, she'd had um, two of her pets had been killed. She had horrendous threats online. Um, And what she said a number of days beforehand uh, to her son, Matthew, who's now one of my clients, uh, she said they're trying to fry me alive. So actually, when she was killed on that day in October 2017, it was what some people have described as the ultimate act of censorship. But in fact, the state, the Maltese state, had given a green light to say this woman is fair game. You know, politicians had sued her. 
She was a hate figure for the government. And that's why what we ended up achieving and what the family ended up achieving in the public inquiry a number of years ago was so important because we had a public inquiry in Malta, quite a fight to get it to happen. Uh, And the public inquiry found that the Maltese state shouldered responsibility for her death. That's hugely important. And that's what happens in so many of these cases. There's a culture of total impunity. A message goes out from the state to say, journalists are fair game. And I see that time and time again. And we have got to start standing up to that. Now, luckily with Malta, because Malta was a Council of Europe, is a Council of Europe and an EU state, we were able to use the law within the Council of Europe uh, to hold the Maltese state to account. I should say that fight's still not over. You know, not everyone involved in her killing is yet convicted and behind bars. There have been some convictions, but there are some You're still working proceedings. on this. We are, st- we are still working on it. But it, we have been able to achieve some, some um, aspects of justice and accountability in her case. When you're dealing with some other states uh, which are don't have any connection to the rule of law, aren't in the Council of Europe, aren't in the European Union, it's very difficult. You know, we look at something like Jamal Khashoggi. So Jamal Khashoggi killed by Saudi Arabia, dismembered in a grotesque way um, in Turkey. You then have particular problems because although Turkey is a Council of Europe country, the state uh, responsible, the state that was suspected of being responsible at the time, we now know was responsible, um, isn't within that system. And uh, I'm talking to you actually at the uh, anniversary, April this year is the anniversary of a very tragic death of a very talented photojournalist called Anton Hamerl. And this is a good example um, and a very stark example, really, of how difficult it can be for bereaved families to achieve accountability. So Anton Hamerl was killed in Libya in April 2011. He was with, he was in a group of four journalists. One of them was James Foley, Jim Foley, uh, who you'll remember, um, who was killed a number of years later by ISIS. So there were four journalists together. It was, it was, it was Jim who was beheaded. That's right. On, on a video. That's right. That's right. A number of years later. So in April 2011, four journalists, including Anton Hamerl and including Jim Foley, uh, were kidnapped by forces loyal to Gaddafi in Libya. And they were there to shine a light on atrocious human rights abuses which were happening at the time in Libya. They're the reason. They were the world's eyes and ears. And the job they were doing was so important. And the four of them were set upon by forces loyal to Gaddafi. Um, They were kidnapped for six weeks. uh, My client, Penny, um, Anton's widow, was led to believe that Anton was alive and in prison with the other three journalists. And the way she found out the truth is that six weeks later, after a campaign to free the four journalists, yellow ribbon campaign to free them all and so on that you might remember, um, she saw uh, on international TV an image of the journalists being released and she saw there was three of them and she saw Anton wasn't there. And when he got over the border, uh, Jim Foley then rang her to say, I'm so sorry, Penny, to tell you. uh, But on the day when we were kidnapped, on the 5th of April, I saw Anton being murdered. And they were wearing press vests, press insignia. Uh, Anton was carrying his camera, as he always did. They were clearly press. Uh, We know from the eyewitness accounts from the other three journalists that were there that they made very clear that they were press. And Anton was killed in cold blood. Now, 12 years later, 2023, his body has never been recovered. Uh, So Penny and her two sons don't have a place where they can grieve in the normal way, like any bereaved family normally would. And her boys at the time in 2011, one of them was age seven. He's now a young man. Um, And the other boy was six weeks old. So uh, same age as one of my children, actually. So now 12. So just at the stage of starting secondary school, And he obviously never knew his father uh, because of this horrendous thing that happened. And Penny has been fighting to try to get accountability and justice. And one of the barriers that she's faced is Penny is South African. Uh, Her and her boys are South African. And they're also European Union citizens uh, because of a link to Austria. But they live in London. And we spoke earlier about London being a place, a magnet that people go to. And many talented journalists from around the world travel to London. And Anton did that. Penny herself is a journalist. She did that. But Anton was in London as a South African and in London as an Austrian, dual national. And when he was killed, I'm sorry to say uh, that the UK government washed their hands of him. And they said, well, he's not entitled to consular support. And I started acting for Penny a couple of years ago on the 10th anniversary. And Penny had never received a single form of uh, victim support or anything. Now, if you're assaulted on the tube, you get offered victim support. Uh, And here she had her husband killed in what we know was a war crime from the evidence of Jim Foley and the other journalists. 
Uh, so an outrageous violation of international law mm. and she got given minimal support. And I think it's horrifying to many. You know, we look at people like Lise Doucette, who's Canadian, mm. or, you know, Orla Geerin, who's Irish. There's so many talents who come to London. London presents itself as being an international city. But I can tell you, if you're an international journalist and you're killed and your family's in the UK, the support you get is minimal. Simply not good enough. Keelan, you're currently working off Jim Foley's notes yeah, that's right. To assist you in this. That's right. So Jim Foley's mother, Diane Foley, really inspiring woman, uh, incredible person. Um, she has been hugely supportive of um, Penny and her family and the fight for justice for Anton Hamerl. And she has given us his notebooks because at the time when Jim was beheaded by ISIS, so targeted for his work as a journalist in that horrific way, he actually had become uh, really obsessed with trying to get justice for Anton because he felt, I've witnessed a war crime. What I saw in April 2011 was outrageous and wrong and no one appears to be dealing with it and taking it seriously. Libya hadn't been taking responsibility. South Africa hadn't been taking responsibility. The UK, where the family lived, hadn't been taking responsibility. As we often see in these cases, what ends up happening is a hodgepodge of human rights lawyers, uh, journalists, and bereaved families are the people who actually take up the cudgels when actually what should be happening is law enforcement agencies should be investigating. So how have we got a situation where 12 years later there has not been an investigation into this case? And that's why now we're trying to fight for an investigation into um, Anton's death. But we have particular problems because you're dealing with a state, Libya, that's not rule of law compliant. And then you've got these various other states involved, Austria, South Africa, the UK, and no one's stepping in and taking responsibility. And that's the story, really, when you look at something like what happened with Jamal Khashoggi, or you look at what's happened with Anton Hamerl, um, you have got to have a situation where when the state that's responsible for the killing doesn't step up to the plate, the international community must. And that's a real gap in our system currently. Our human rights system is very much based on an assumption that the violation of human rights happens within a particular country and then you hold that country to account. But what do you do where the country like Saudi Arabia or like Libya isn't being held to account and their own systems aren't working? The international community has got to step in. So that's a core part of what I'm doing at the moment. I could keep you here for three days talking about this aspect of your work because we also were talking about Maria Ressa yeah. in the Philippines, Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong, yeah. in Colombia. Yes, Jeanette Bedoya Lima. Yeah. yeah. All these cases are so different yeah. in the way they, they, they happened, in the, the nature of the cruelty, state savagery, state ignoring of, of, of that pillar of democracy. Yeah. Um, Maria Ressa's case in particular, Keelan, um, I think, is because, as you say, some journalists could have got out. Yeah. They could be making a nice living elsewhere in the world. But the likes of Maria and Jimmy Lai, for example, they had the resources, intellectual, financial, that could be living anywhere. Yeah. And yet they're both now... Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I find there two of my clients who I find hugely inspiring. Mm. So uh, Maria's um, just a little over five foot, so very small in stature, but uh, what an absolutely massive, incredible person. Um, she's uh, someone who um, has for many years uh, been a brilliant journalist, honing her craft. And when Duterte, the Duterte administration came in in the Philippines, uh, Maria immediately became a thorn in the side for the Duterte administration. And look, journalists tread on some very powerful toes and uh, Maria tread on, trod on some very powerful toes. And as a result, as she got targeted in the most terrific way, as she became a hate figure, she received multiple you know, rape threats daily, mm. uh, online abuse, um, uh, much of which was coordinated by state actors. But what then happened to her, what we also see with Jimmy Lai, is the state weaponizing the law against her. So Maria talks quite often about facing death by a thousand cuts, so being targeted in multiple ways. So targeted online, um, people who are her supporters and her sources getting targeted, but also her getting targeted, her and her media organisation Rappler getting targeted through the courts. And that's also what we see with Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong too. And you're quite right, Cathy, that both Jimmy Lai and Maria Ressa could be making lives for themselves outside their country. But for both of them, it's been so important to speak truth to power in their home country. So for Maria in the Philippines, for Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong. And that is why them having stood up to be counted in their home countries, it's of vital importance that we stand up and we're counted for them. And I've got to say, Ireland does now have um, a presence, a diplomatic presence in Manila. So anyone who's listening to this who wants to support Maria, 
please do write uh, to uh, your TD. Uh, please do raise concerns. Uh, please contact the Department of Foreign Affairs and make clear that actually Maria's case has got to be a priority for Ireland. I mean, Ireland has been, uh, to its credit, Ireland has been hugely impressive in the United Nations and in the Council of Europe on a range of human rights issues and standing up for human rights defenders and standing up for freedom of expression. But in these individual cases, Ireland's got to stand up and be counted too and we'd really welcome any support. It's interesting you should say that because quite often Ireland's role is, you know, soft role is often sneered at by some individuals. But you actually do think that it, it, it has done some important work. But very much form. so, very much so. And, you know, when, I, when I'm at the United Nations in Geneva or at the United Nations in New York, I can tell you Ireland is incredibly well regarded, um, very, very well regarded. And uh, that's something that I'm very proud of as an Irish person. And also actually, you know, this is a women's podcast. Irish women in particular in international law are doing incredibly well. You know, so we have currently a um, range of hugely talented women in really key roles in international law. So we've got, you know, a number of the United Nations experts. So UN Special Rapporteurs, Mary Lawler on Human Rights Defenders, Fanula Nielon just finishing up uh, her stint uh, on counter-terrorism. Uh, we also uh, have uh, specialists on anti-trafficking. We also have Professor Aoife Nolan, um, now in a key role at the Council of Europe. Uh, and of course, uh, we have uh, the top judge at the European Court of Human Rights also being an Irish woman and a UCD woman, uh, I, I, I should add. Um, but these are really impressive. You know, Ireland really is um, in the lead on a lot of these issues internationally. And it's why it seems to me it's so important that I Ireland then uses its bilateral power and uses its diplomatic weight uh, to weigh in on a number of these really key cases. Well, you've certainly used your power and expertise because there are very few tribunals you haven't stood in front of and harangued them, hopefully. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, what is that like, Keelan, to, to, you know, to stand before, you know, one of those tribunals, international courts, and argue a case? Do you still feel nervous? Yeah, so um, I, I think... Even after decades of doing the job, uh, I can't eat on a day when I'm in court, wherever it is. You know, you get the your, your stomach kind of growling. Um, you do get nerves, but that's that's adrenaline. You know, and I think you just have to convert that into doing the best possible job. And that's the same whether you're in front of a very lowly court or a very high international court. It's all the same thing. And bottom line is the thing that drives you is... Uh, you're doing the job for your client. That's the person who's at the core of the case. You're there to try to get justice of whatever kind for your client and to do a job for them. And it's a privilege, but but also uh, it's a burden. And on the day when you're in court, you just have to make sure uh, that you use your words and use your skills in the best possible way to try to get the right outcome. I've got to say, on days when that works, this is the best job in the world. So on a day when you have, you know, the Hillsborough family standing and giving a standing ovation to the jury mm. and, you know, people with decades of terrible pain hugging you and thanking you for what you've done, what a privilege to do this job. But it also means the, the bad days are very bad. You know, and when you have a situation where you have uh, a journalist abroad or a human rights defender abroad and despite everything you've done, you haven't yet managed to get them out. Um, or you have someone who's a victim of torture abroad, for example, and you're dealing with their loved ones and you're talking about how you can minimise the risk to them. Those days are very difficult. But also it's why the job is so important. You know, it's not a nine to five job. It's a job that does keep you awake at night. It gets you up very early in the morning. And that stays with you over weekends and over holidays. Which brings and me very neatly so on to where you find the time for all that you do. Yeah. I, mean, I think, did you mention earlier that you sleep Margaret Thatcher hours? Yeah, well, I think... four a night, I think. I, I, I very little overlap with Margaret Thatcher. But uh, <laughs> I, I think I think the one overlap is um, definitely in terms of insomnia. I've definitely got a touch of the Margaret Thatchers when it comes to sleeping hours. Uh, that is definitely true. Look, I've always been like that Um uh, so that that's part of it. Uh, and I suppose the other thing is um, you just adjust your time, don't you? You know, you, you suddenly then when you've got kids and you've got a very full on job, um, you just try to make it work. And one of the advantages, I suppose, to now being able to do so much work on devices away from the office and so on is that actually um, you can um, pick things up and deal with things uh, at strange hours. A lot of my work has got very strange hours because of the time zones. Mm. So I've got clients in a large, large uh, parts of the world. And then on some of my cases, like say with Maria Ressa's case, Maria is often based in Manila in the Philippines. Um, I run the case uh, with a 
really talented legal team and uh, my co-counsel is uh, Amal Clooney, who's often in the US. So between us, it's quite difficult to get a time that works. <laughs> we, yes. we often have to find the sweet spot, which is the only time that works. And it, it quite often is an unsociable hour for someone. What would that be? But that's the nature of the job. So usually it's very early in the morning US, very late in the evening in Manila and not too bad for the UK. <laughs> uh, so I, I probably get the best deal out of all of those. But it, it, it depends on the case. And uh, on a lot of our cases, we do need to be available. So say, you know, when I've had clients released um, from Iran, for example, and then travelling, you have your heart in your mouth as you're watching the plane uh, being tracked to check, have they passed into airspace? Are they actually free? Are they actually out? So you do have, it's that kind of job, which is with you um, every hour and every minute. Um, but I, I, I do think um, there's an increasing recognition of vicarious trauma amongst lawyers that, you know, we do need to recognise actually that you're only going to be able to keep doing the job if you look after yourself. So uh, we do need to train ourselves to try to take breaks um, and to try to um, put the job aside uh, when you can to get a break, do, just how, to make sure you can keep going and you don't you burn do out. How do you do that, though, in practice? Because I notice on your CV, you're also a part-time coroner in England and Wales. You've trained judges in Turkey on free speech standards. In January, you were appointed the Irish government's special rapporteur on child protection. I mean, and a lot of your work is pro bono. So, so I mean, we should probably talk about the, the special rapporteur job yeah. uh, because presumably that's one of the reasons you'll be back and forth quite a bit. Yeah, well, I, I'm always back and forth quite a bit between Dublin and London. I kind of sp I split my time, you know, it's partly for professional reasons and partly for personal reasons. My parents are uh, here, still still Northsiders, <laughs> as as I was. Um, so I'm, I'm back and forth quite a lot. Um, yeah, and in, in terms of the work that I do, I suppose the three main things that I do are, I do a lot of work, which is to do with safety of journalists and media freedom. Um, I, I do a lot of work, which is to do with children's rights, um, and uh, rights of women, violence against women. And then I, I do a lot of work which is to do with inquests and inquiries and acting for bereaved families who've been let down by the state in some way. They're the kind of broad things that I do. So my children's rights work is very important to me and uh, I have for a long time wanted to give something back. That sounds a little cheesy, but um, you know I've had the benefit of being able to learn from some of the best internationally and to hone my skills internationally and... Um, and I've also seen how well Ireland does on the international stage in relation to human rights and children's rights. And it has felt to me for a long time that actually we need to make sure that it, we get our house in order at home in Ireland on children's rights. And we've just seen in January uh, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child holding Ireland to account and finding that Ireland uh, really has many blots on its copybook when it comes to children's rights in a very wide range of areas in relation to disabled children, uh, children from the travelling community, whole range of topics on which Ireland really has to change. Even though we have, we, we, we had a referendum about this a few years ago, that obviously didn't nearly cover. Yeah, so I think we now have, so my first annual report will be uh, submitted to the government in June of this year. I've only been in post since the 1st of February, so that's a very quick turnaround time for first annual report. But the reason for that is that my predecessor, Professor Conor O'Mahony, uh, finished um, last June, in June 2022. And uh, in the period when no one was in the post, from July to January, quite a lot of very important things happened. So, for example, Leo Vradkar announced this new uh, unit, um, on child poverty. Um, we had the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child um, giving its concluding observations about Ireland. And it seems to me it's important to stock take. So my initial annual report is really going to be a stock take about what's the yardstick for Ireland going forward on child rights? What does it now need to do? What does it now need to do to improve things uh, for children in relation to access to mental health and CAMS, for example? What does it need to do to improve the situation for children in the criminal justice system, for disabled children, discrimination against children from traveller and Roma communities? So my first annual report is really going to be setting out what the yardstick is. And then I've got a three year period where uh, I, in my role, which is independent, but advising government, will be doing all I can to hold government to account against that yardstick. I noticed you keep using the word independent in relation to that to that to that appointment. Is 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 this a paid role, Keelan? Yeah, so it's a public appointment. So it's got there's a stipend associated with it. So uh, not not a very high stipend. It's so fair to say. Your so life. No, not no, very much not. So I'm pretty much running it at a loss because of uh, <laughs> what the rate is. But it's very important to me to do it. 
Um, I think it's a really important role. I think it's a credit uh, to the Irish government that the role is in place. It is independent. You know, we've had uh, Dr. Geoffrey Shannon and then Professor Conor O'Mahony doing the role before me. So this is the first time that a woman's doing the role. It's also the first time a non-academic is doing the role. And I hope that I can bring some of my expertise as a practitioner and my many years of acting for victims and survivors of child sexual abuse and children who've been let down by the state in multiple ways in the UK and internationally. I'm hoping that I can bring that to bear now uh, turning and turning a lens on Ireland and what Ireland's doing on child rights. Have you any idea how much of your work is pro bono? Yeah, so uh, a lot of it is pro bono and a lot of it is low bono, I suppose is the other yes. way to, to put it. Um, uh, but I do think one of the really important things about that is um, that uh, we've seen in a number of European states over the last few years uh, a real undermining of their legal aid systems. Mm. So what you end up getting is you end up getting people in the worst possible moment of their lives when they really need expert specialist support, sometimes not having any funding for it. And they're offered uh, a kind of very junior trainee from a city firm who normally does commercial law and is willing to do, you know, to, to have a go at a human rights case. But human rights law is very specialist. And I, I'm afraid to say I've seen some really terrible things in the last number of years where people have had pro bono support, which has actually not been specialist. I would never dream of yeah. weighing in to do a construction law case because I'm not a construction lawyer. But somehow, you know, people who are commercial lawyers somehow sometimes do think, well, I'll have a go at human rights law and it can be very damaging. So, for example, um, you know, I've seen over the last few years some situations where uh, people have filed complaints with some United Nations bodies, which are kind of soft mechanisms that don't have any real teeth, uh, when in fact they had a, a real remedy with real teeth available in a different place, say from the European Court of Human Rights, and they were never advised on the risks. So it's very dangerous for people to dabble. And I think it's very important that we have specialist lawyers uh, providing support. Now, for many of the bereaved families that I deal with, uh, for example, bereaved families of journalists, um, I want to be in it for the long haul. So you want to mm. not just do a particular individual bit of work, mm. but to, like with Penny, Anton Hamerl's wife, to work with them uh, over a long period of time uh, on trying to hone a strategy and secure justice for them. So something that's grown up in the last few years that's very important is uh, the growth of low bono in that area. So you can keep the lights on while still doing work that's very important. So while much of the work is unpaid, uh, there are ways in which you can secure support, for example, from the Justice for Journalists Foundation, really superb organisation who provides support and have provided support actually in Anton Hamerl's case so that you can have people who can take on these very long running, mm. very difficult cases. And often where even if the lawyers are acting pro bono, that's only part of the story because the family may also, for example, have to pay court fees or pay for translators mm. and so on. And it's really important that there's now a growth in recognition that actually that kind of specialist work should have some level of support, albeit not being paid at commercial rates, but mm. there should be some support and some support to cover the costs associated with this very important specialist work. Keelan, how do you protect yourself? I mean, I have to say it's a chronicle of unspeakable grimness. I mean, we haven't even mentioned yeah. the Ibrahim Halawa case in Egypt or all the, 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 the much wider issue about acting for people detained in Egypt and the desperate disappointment about the Spring Awakening and all that. But how do you, how do you relax? Yeah, um, that's a really good question, actually. So it, I suppose you're right. It, it is a bit of a chronicle of grimness. One of my colleagues said to me once, you do very sad law, which I thought was quite a good description. And, you know, it is it is in many ways very sad law, the law that I do. But um, And it, you're quite right that you do need to work out ways that you can switch off. Because I, I find quite often your mind races and... You know, you're try if you're trying to read, you spend so much of your life reading, and then when you try to read a book, your mind races. So um, there's a few things that I do. Uh, I watch terrible TV. Uh, oh, good. So yeah, I watch you know Netflix. I watch all sorts of what trash TV. Watch? Oh, uh, everything and anything. I watch no, like dating something. shows. Yes. Yes, you know, I, I watch I watch a whole range of different things. I have to say, First Dates Ireland has been quite good for me lately. But you know, nice kind of switch off TV, like kind of chewing gum TV. So something like that can sometimes be quite good. Um, I uh, I do like cooking as well. And uh, this is going to sound very strange, but um, when I was much younger, before I had that um, accident in UCD when I was 20, um, I was learning to fly. I was taking flying lessons. 
And um, I actually lost my uncle, my uncle Sean, Sean Gallagher, um, to COVID in April 2020. I was very close to him. And in fact, he was someone who was quite obsessed with uh, flying and had as a kid in uh, the north side um, back in the 60s had managed to go um, from a working class family, had managed to go and do a deal with the airfield that he would uh, do some cleaning in exchange for some flying lessons. So he actually sounds like a very privileged thing, but it didn't come from a place of privilege at all. It came from a working class kid who was a bit obsessed with Biggles. He taught himself <laughs> to fly and it was something that we shared. And, you know, something that I did when I was a teenager, I then was in a wheelchair when I was 20 and just stopped and then life happens. And I kept thinking, I must do, must go back to doing that at some point. And when Sean died in 2020, I thought, here I am in my 40s, you know, more than two decades on, I haven't done it. So it's a real carpe diem moment. I have been going back to my flying lessons and I've got to say uh, that is a way to switch off from work because you've just got to concentrate. Um, you know, there you are in this tiny little tin can in the air um, and all you can do is just concentrate on the dials and focus on that. So yeah, trash TV and learning to fly. <laughs> and cooking. Yeah, and cooking. That is a most fantastic array of distractions. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've got to say also childcare. <laughs> so, um, of course. Yeah, I've, got, uh, I've got a teenager, a preteen, and then a pre-preteen in my house. So um, my hands are pretty full with them too. And uh, there isn't much time to be thinking about work when you're dealing with them. Although I've got to say, they're all very supportive about my work. You know, they, uh, they do follow it. Um, and they're very interested and very supportive, and uh, they're turning into uh, three little activists themselves. Keelan Gallagher, it's been an honour to have you in the studio. We're very proud of you. No, well, it's a privilege to be here, and I've admired your work from afar for a long time, Cathy. It's lovely to talk to you. Well, gosh, thank you for that. And that's it for today. I'm exhausted listening to the work of Keelan Gallagher. She is a truly formidable woman and I think as a nation we should be extremely proud of her. Thanks again to her for coming into the studio. Remember you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle, Aideen Finnegan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and until next time, thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 